0: CIM podcasts. The contents and views expressed by individuals in this podcast are not necessarily those of the companies for which they work. Due to the coronavirus lockdown, the CIM podcast is currently being recorded via web conferencing. We apologise for any issues with the audio.
1: Okay, hi everybody and welcome again to the latest edition of the CIM podcast. Now, you know, a guy called Robert the Bruce is famous for telling us to try, try, try again if at first we don't succeed. And I'm delighted to say that we have with us today his compatriot, Morag cuddiford jones who most of you will now know is the editor of the CIM magazine, Catalyst. Morag,
2: how are you today? I'm not sure how to live up to that introduction, Ben, other than to reiterate to listeners that I may be his compatriot, but I'm not the same age. A very much younger compatriot.
1: But you know what? You think he was right, don't you, about this uh, try, try, try again? And that seems to have had uh, a big resonance for marketers.
2: It is very much so, because I think particularly now where budgets are squeezed and everyone is watching every step they take, the idea of... Getting something wrong tends to strike fear into the heart of marketers to the extent that forget, try, try, try again that may be stopping them from trying in the first place. So, the idea of try, try, try again is not everything's going to succeed. In fact, particularly if you're a scientist, very little is going to succeed. If you look at the Oxford vaccine, everyone's you know touting the idea that this is massive success but it's going through lots of trials because lots of bits of it are going to go wrong mm. and marketers need to try and pick up that scientific mindset i think they've got the wrong idea about a scientific mindset they think that a scientific mindset is one plus one plus one plus one will always equal four yeah that's not true at all in science in science doing things scientifically means testing messing it up something completely unknowable has gone wrong going back, finding out what the unknowable thing was, and then trying again. So it's almost as important to find out why things are going wrong so you can start building something that will go right. But you, you seem to be implying
1: that finding out that something doesn't work is as useful as finding out that something, that something does work, but marketers are scared of being the people who push forward something that then fails.
2: Well, absolutely, because it costs money. It costs money. It takes time. And marketing is one of those professions that is built massively on professional reputation. We've got a very active, as as you and I well know, we've got a very active press in this sector. And we follow every strategy, every tactic with minute interest. And when things go wrong, we dearly love leaping upon them. Um, so, failures are high profile. They can be high cost and they can be high profile. But again, finance, government, everything goes wrong and has a cost. It's how you deal with that, what you learn from it, and how you go forward. I mean, think about famous mistakes. So, the company 3M, glue company, was trying to find the strongest glue they'd ever made. As a result, they accidentally made the weakest one. And, yes. lo, and lo, the post it note was born. It was a Viagra
1: mistake of, of some kind as well. It was, they were trying to, they were trying to, uh, we've talked about this before, we always seem to talk about these things, but you know, wasn't that a mistake of some kind? It turned out to be a wonder drug, not just for its main use, but for the heart conditions and so on and so forth too.
2: I think it's it's the series of unintended consequences. And yeah. that's that's one of the things that is an adjunct to the try, try, try again. So try, try, try again is being comfortable with making a flat-out mistake yeah it's also that in doing so you've got to have this really open mindset to things so not only do you want to find out what went wrong and why you want to think with an open mindset what went wrong that we can make use out of so this isn't doing what we asked it to do but what is it actually doing
1: do you think, then, in order to have that open mindset, that's got to be a cultural thing in an organisation? It's got to be a cultural thing in a marketing department. It's got to be a cultural thing at a marketing agency. Do you think the fault lies with the marketers who, who don't have that mindset or the culture of the organisation?
2: Ah, well, there, there's a question. So um, I was speaking to Paul Durvin, who's the CMO of Ireland's National Lottery. So if, if anything, you're going to try, try, try again, at it's the national lottery, isn't it? Um, he wrote the try, try again article for us in this ish, issue of Catalyst. So actually having done that article, I phoned, I phoned him back up because this is one of the things he touched on very briefly in the article. And I wanted to ask him a bit more about it, which was, what do you actually do? How do you build that culture so that people feel comfortable about making those mistakes and that people can be equipped to learn from them when they do?
0: Yeah, it's a good question and it's probably the the single biggest thing. Um, I'd say you a, a few things that I, I certainly try and do. So the, the more you can move towards an evi- evidence-based culture and evidence-based decision-making, that's a good starting point. Um, so, you know, understanding what... The, you know where they like there's some good, strong empirical evidence uh, that's been around for 30 years on lots of things, um, and starting with those and and getting everybody on the same page on those uh, and, and explaining and really understanding those those principles. And certainly the one the one thing for me that I think is is like the one behaviour for me that I think is, is you know perhaps the best one is. The ability to enjoy discovering you're wrong, um, and and not be and not um, and not be threatened by discovering you're wrong. So actually enjoy discovering you've made a mistake, which is really hard for
1: us to do. But he seems to be implying that that's not common. That actually there is um, a, a culture where still. Um, we're not uh, treating marketing as a scientific trial and error approach and we're expecting everything to be done right first time. Did you get that implication from him?
2: I think it's, it's not so much that we're trying to get things right first time, we know things go wrong and we know not everything goes to plan. I think what we're worried about is that when we try to understand what makes a good marketing campaign, And then we try to repeat it, and that goes wrong. Then suddenly all the stability is whipped out from under you. You start to question your abilities. You start to question um, what you did uh, and go back and try and find out what went wrong. And this is one of the things that he addresses in the article as well, which is to make sure you're measuring the right stuff and making the the big failure of marketers is to assume causation.
1: Is Paul concerned that people are scared to fail or is it something else at work?
2: I think it's not so much that they're scared to fail per se it's that they don't easily understand why they've failed so they will look at even a successful campaign he notes uh, both in the article and when I spoke to him later he notes that one of his biggest mistakes was one of his most successful campaigns which was what which was a campaign for a mobile company in Ireland. Um, And he'd done some fairly unorthodox things, things that don't really follow the marketing advertising playbook because he'd seen it work for another campaign. And indeed it did work the first time round, but it didn't have the longevity it required. It wasn't repeatable. And so when he went back and instead of analyzing what the campaign did but analysing how he'd done the campaign, that's where he started to find where all the mistakes were, both in his logic and in its application.
1: So is there a danger then that if something's successful, we assume that all of the building blocks and all of the theory behind it is correct, and actually it might be successful for some other reason, and then when we replicate it, it doesn't work?
2: Exactly, It's the, he calls it the mistake of assuming causation, so basically, what happened was he did what he thought was a great ad campaign. Sales shot up. He went, sales shot up because of my ad campaign. He said, hmm, there might have been other factors at play there. So, of course, when you try and repeat it, sales don't shoot up. And you're like, well, but, but why? <laughs> they did the first time round. So it's understanding what are the impacts of the various cogs and tools within your campaign not necessarily trying to stick. It's all, you know, it's the problem we've had with digital forever and ever, last click attribution. We've we've long since ditched that idea as being the ultimate decider of whether or not a digital campaign is right. And the same happens with you've got to apply that across the omnichannel, across the marketing disciplines. Don't just look at the last uptick to justify what you did.
1: So you're implying then you have to evaluate the decision making process, not the outcome. But well, that's ferociously difficult, isn't it?
2: That's the thing, isn't it? Because it's easy and it's comforting to look at the last numbers. And in all honesty, that's what departments outside marketing are asking marketers for. They're asking us for the ROI. They're asking us for the, the you know, link, link how much money we gave you as CFOs to how much you spent and how much we got back. But finding out and analysing campaigns that went wrong and analysing campaigns that go well. And delving into that level of detail when you think you might not have to, it requires a certain forensic spirit, I think. You have to want to go back and analyze what you're doing and learn from it without perhaps some of the motivations of failing or having to redo a campaign, etc. You just need to have this constant learning. And I think that's, that's another thing that Paul and other contributors to Catalyst often tell us about is this having this mindset of continual learning and not running away from the difficult stuff.
1: It means that you have to go away and evaluate campaigns that have been successful and work out what worked in their decision-making process and worked out what didn't work. But my most of my experience in business is that that just doesn't happen, that if something works well, it gets big tick next to it, put to one side. If something doesn't work well, then yes, there's an inquest, there's an inquiry. But actually, that's a very bad way uh, of working out the building blocks of success, isn't it?
2: It is. I think you very much need to have, as I said, that forensic mindset and build this into what we do as marketers. We're banging on about measurement, but measuring the after effects, it only takes you a certain degree. And if you want to learn how to do the various steps well, what ones contribute to successful campaigns, what ones are actually perfectly good tactics, but they may be the right tactic in the wrong place. It seems like when there's so many things attracting our attention and our budget and our time, that to add a layer of something that is not immediately obvious what it's going to give back to us just seems like yet another hassle. But I think what we're seeing from the successful marketers and the marketers who are able to deliver on these learnings, They're going back and they're doing that boring stuff.
1: Mm. This sort of mindset does help to lead to this sort of agility, this mental agility that we need. And you've been doing some work about that, haven't you? uh, Trying to avoid the fixed mindset.
2: Exactly. So one of the things that they talk about when you want to do agile. Now, this is a little bit different to business speak and agile methodology. This is this is more a mindset and an approach. Um, If you want to be agile, which to my understanding means being able to react, being able to react quickly, being able to react well, being able to stay on brand with whatever your next decision is going to be. Um, To stay agile, you need to have strong building blocks in place. You need to know that when you pick up a tactic and want to use it, it's the right tactic. You know how to use it well and it's going to deliver for you. You don't, particularly in an agile environment, you don't have a lot of time. To um and ah over those decisions so having this agile mindset means having those that intel in place so that's that's what paul was talking about you know having those understandings now moving on to that mindset and being able to apply that you need to be flexible you need to be open to new ideas you need to not let your preconceptions get in the way of i've always done it this way So i'm going to do it this way the situation may not warrant you doing it this way we know that the six months have taught us anything they've taught us that that nothing is currently the same so you have to be open to what the situation is telling you not what you think the situation is do you think that
1: that, i mean that's that's a classic human uh confirmation bias fallacy isn't it that we as humans have a natural inclination to fit the evidence to our hypothesis, rather than vice versa. Problem or just something to be aware of?
2: I think I think it has the potential to be a big problem. It's something that um, one of uh, one of our good friends at Catalyst, uh, Colin Lewis, who's the CMO of Jaw Technologies. He's a former chief marketer at various airlines. He's he's been around the marketing block some good time. And he always has some interesting things to say on this topic. And one of the things that he said is, we always think that our perceptions faithfully represent reality. Um, And we often delete perceptual information. We discount it. We see something and go, nah, because it just doesn't fit with our bias. Um, And that can, it could could be a small impact, just means we've missed out on an opportunity. Or it can lead to some of the most tone deaf responses from brands to things because they think, you know, a brand with a, with a jolly tone of voice, thinks it can come out and be jolly in the middle of a coronavirus. Well, that would have been okay in a small disaster, but not a big one, read the room. Um, so it can lead us into some fairly sticky situations. And so right now, particularly now, we need to be really open because either we're not experiencing things we've experienced before, people who are not like us are experiencing new realities, and we need to be open to what they are feeling and be able to respond as well. So I think that confirmation bias that, that I, I call it when I'm doing interviews, and you know i want to I want to say one of my perceptions to get somebody to either confirm or deny it. I always say, speaking from my focus group of one, mm. you know this is this is why even focus groups are problematic, because who's chosen the focus group? Mark' yes. gone out and picked nine people just like them. They may as well have just done
1: the research themselves. It's hard to get a representative sample, isn't it, in a focus group when you've only got nine or 10 people on it. Um, How do you get a cross-cut of the population?
2: Well, that's one, that's actually another article that was in um, the previous issue of of Catalyst, which was on weird thinking. And it shows that market researchers tend to pick the same middle-class white people over and over and over again. 90% of the market research is done amongst 12% of the population. And marketers really need to expand their horizons and stop thinking of finding people like them.
1: Well, they might as well interview themselves if they're gonna do that, presumably. Oh, exactly.
2: exactly, my focus group of one is perfectly correct and yeah. it's perfectly correct for me. Yes. It may not be at all correct for my 16 year old son.
1: That is fantastic,
2: isn't it? It's an interesting idea
1: about developing this agile mindset in marketing but you have found that you don't need to just apply it to your marketing output, but also to oneself.
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, when we talk about marketing and marketers, almost going hand in hand with that is the marketer's own personal brand. Where am I going to go next? And so keeping that agile mindset and knowing that you have a set of tools in store that are gonna help you react and drive your career forwards, are a really essential part of that marketer's toolkit. And I think right now, I keep saying it, right now more than ever, it's another reason to keep that marketer's toolkit fresh and shiny, because of course, sadly, what we've heard is a large number of redundancies, structure changes, and marketers are having to react. They're they're being thrown into this position. And if you don't have that tool set, it becomes very difficult to reset and revive and go on to thrive. And so one person who I know has been through this mill more than a couple of times is again, our friend Colin, who has not just some great advice about your professional day-to-day mindset, but also about how you can rebuild and revive when you face some of the biggest challenges in your own career, and that's losing your job. He's been made redundant several times, And each time he's taken the learning, picked himself up and moved on. Um, Key to that mindset is something that he wrote about for us as well in one of his marketing mindsets was keeping your options open. And he said, the worst number in your career is the number one, which is having one skill, one choice and one hope. Just as you diversify your investments, diversify your skills, diversify your contacts. And when I spoke to him, he did have several words of cheer for people, for marketers who find themselves in this situation.
3: Particularly over the last, say, two or three months, if you are a person who's been at the, sort of, uh, at a, maybe been laid off for a short time, I have this kind of idea called um, the three-month turnaround. And I, as I say, it's been built on some pretty hard experience on my side, which is the first month that you are laid off or you're not at work is It's pretty tough, and you, you know, you keep looking backwards, and sometimes you even say, "Why me?" And maybe blame yourself, and you kind of just, to a certain extent, in denial. The second month, um, it's a little bit different. Uh, You're looking backwards, and to a certain extent, looking forward. Uh, And the third month, you kind of start kind of facing reality as it is, and you say, "Well, that job's not coming back." and I've got to look forward now. And and I call this the three-month turnaround. Literally, anybody who comes to me to advise, I say, you've got to look for this three-month turnaround. And immediately, they go and say, you're wrong in the first month. And at the end of month three, they say, you're right. And so you kind of have to give yourself permission to do very little in the first three months as you sort of recover and, and start orientating yourself towards the future. It is 12 weeks no matter what way you cut it and by the way i've actually had to play this trick myself as well about 10 years ago even though i knew about the three-month turnaround i could still see myself panicking and then by the end of month three i was no longer panicking i could face the world sort of positively and, and, and speaking of positively uh, it, there's one very strange thing which is not just for me but you know a number of people i've been interviewing for my column over the last six months Um, and they've all said this very interesting thing. They said, actually, and and they're talking like maybe things they've done over the last you know, when they've got laid off, not just this year, but like the previous times. They said it's the best thing that ever happened to them. And that sounds really totally paradoxical. But the reason is simple. Very few of us, and I'm including me, very few of us are brave enough to make a decision to leave a company ourselves. I did twice, once to emigrate, uh, and actually twice to emigrate, would you believe? But you know, when somebody takes something away from us, we're forced to sort of face our future and we take a different perspective, maybe making choices we wouldn't have made if we were in our groove. And there's this phrase, um you know, two phrases I'd like to leave with you on this, because it does sound paradoxical. When we're no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And the change ends up coming to you. And this is why people go and say, although the change was forced on me,
2: I realize
3: it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So that's kind of one point I really want to think about. It sounds not so good at the moment, but over the long term, you might go and say to yourself, it wasn't great, but probably was one of the best things that happened to me I'm out of my comfort zone and I'm ready to face the future.
1: That's fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating advice. I suspect that most people would uh, naturally tend to the opposite, that if they were made redundant, uh, they would try to immediately rectify the situation in those first four weeks, those first five weeks. But Colin, they saying take 12 weeks, take stock, uh, and then you'll be better prepared for the future. And actually, that future might be better.
2: Indeed. And I think obviously you have to mitigate that with the pressures people will face in the first three months it's not always going to be something where you have the luxury of sitting back and reviewing your career and looking where you want to go in 12 12 weeks time but the learning is still there the knee-jerk reaction to go oh god it's all gone wrong what can i do to put it right but then realizing with hindsight it was the best thing that happened to you he's absolutely right we can and we naturally do we want to gravitate towards comfort and security So we tend to stay where we are longer than we maybe should have, if we really want to challenge ourselves and grow. But also the fact that something has jettisoned you into a new situation. I think that takes us right back to where we started on this podcast, when we were talking about being threatened by mistakes. That also jettisons us into a position of discomfort, into an unfamiliar area. And what Paul was saying at the very start is that mistakes aren't threatening. They force you to re-evaluate how you're doing something, they force you to do it better, and with any luck, they also, and with an open mindset, they open you up to potential new opportunities that mistakes revealed, whether it's a non-sticky sticky sticky post-it note, or Viagra the scourge of the middle-aged woman, (laughs) (laughs) or anything else that you simply can't think of now. It's our our Rumsfeld unknown unknowns. You're only going to find those unknowns when they happen to you.
1: Well, that's good advice. Morag, thank you very much indeed. If you haven't read these articles already in Catalyst, please do so. They're available um, online Um, if you haven't got the magazine. For all CIM members, we'll be joining Morag again, I think, in a few months' time for her next uh, appearance on the CIM podcast. But until that day, so thank you very much, Morag, for your time today. And thank you everyone for listening. And we'll see you on the CIM podcast very soon.
2: Thanks very much, Ben. See you next time. If you've enjoyed this episode,
0: be sure to subscribe to the CIM Marketing Podcast on your platform of choice. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can also join the conversation on Twitter at CIM underscore exchange, where we'll keep you updated about the latest episodes. See you next time. CIM podcast.